Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I should say before I start, like my favorite thing in the world is to be interrupted with questions about clarifications of things I'm saying. So please just like raise your hand if anything I say is unclear at all, or you just have a question about something I said. Maybe you disagree with something I said. I'm going to try to be a little bit controversial and mix things up a bit. So um, my favorite thing in the world would be to have a discussion rather than just talk at you for an hour. So, uh, so my name is Chaz Firestone, and I work in the Perception and Cognition Lab at Yale. And so that means that I study the single most ubiquitous and familiar activity of your mental life, which is visual perception of the world. There's something that I like a lot about perception research, of the many things I like about it and, have, and the reasons I've chosen to study it with like my whole life, is that um, there's this paradox that we face when we study perception research when we study perception, that I think this is, and I think this is more true of perception than of any other sort of part of your mind. The paradox is that on the one hand, like I was just saying, there is nothing more intimately familiar to you than your own conscious visual experience of the world. At the same time, the actual inner workings of your visual system are completely opaque to you, right? As a perceiver, you have sort of no appreciation of why you see things the way that you do. Let me give you an example using my favorite visual illusion in the whole world. So what makes this thing a visual illusion is that even though it's clear as day that the top surface is black and the bottom surface is white, these are in fact the same color on this screen. And the reason this is my favorite illusion is that you may have seen kind of illusions like this before where someone shows you some two squares and says, oh, these are the same even though they look different. But you don't actually have to take my word for it. You can prove this to yourself. So I'd like some audience participation. Here's what you have to do. Take your index finger and put it in front of your face. Close one of your eyes and use your finger to block the sort of barrier between the black and the white surfaces. And if you're doing this right, and I'm seeing a few ahs, you might notice that doing that kind of just makes them suddenly become the same color. And then you take your finger away, and then they look different colors. Then you put your finger there, and then they're the same color again. Right? And now, if, if that, is that working for most people? In case it's not working, I can kind of prove this to you by blocking them myself. And now you can see that they're the same. But, um, but maybe I'm cheating, and maybe I'm sort of changing the color in a way that you don't know. The nice thing about this is that as long as you're able to make this thing work with your finger, on your own, you can sort of prove to yourself that they're the same. You don't need to take my word for it. So I want you to notice something interesting about this illusion. This illusion sort of illustrates the paradox that I mentioned just now. On the one hand, nothing could be clearer to you than the fact that this is black and this is white. right? If you know anything, you know the color of these surfaces. Yet at the same time, if I were to ask you, why did your brain choose to see this thing as black and this thing as white? even though, in fact, they're the same color on the screen, that is not something you have any access to, right? And that's not true for every part of your mind, right? So take, like, the decisions you make in your life, right? So you all decided to attend Trinity College, and maybe some of you are from New England, and you decided to go to college near where you grew up, and maybe some of you are from the West Coast or the South or another country, and you decided to move very far away to go to college. If I were to ask you, why did you make the decisions you made to, to come here or to move very far or to, or to go close to home? You have some insight into why you did that, right? Now, in fact, we know from all sorts of clever psychology studies, you don't have perfect insight. Sometimes there are factors that make you make decisions that you don't know about, but you at least have some insight. But that's not true for vision, right? 
except by doing careful psychology experiments, you just have no idea from the inside why your visual system would choose to see this thing as white and this thing as black. And the reason why I want to sort of spend so much time on this paradox is that it puts us in a funny situation as students of psychology and as, as in my case, as a researcher on perception, which is that we often have intuitions because our visual experiences are so familiar us, to us, we often have intuitions about how visual perception should work, and they can be wrong. And the only way to find out if they're wrong is to do careful psychology experiments. So what I want to talk about today is a particular intuition about seeing that I think many of us have, um, although I'm going to hope it resonates with some of you and not others. I hope this is maybe a kind of controversial intuition. And it's the intuition captured by some figures of speech that we see the world through the lens of our experiences, that what we believe becomes our visual reality. Seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. This is a, a ubiquitous thought that a lot of people have about, about seeing and believing. What does this intuition amount to? What does it mean? Sometimes when people say this sort of thing, they uh, have in mind a, just sort of like a figurative sense of this. They mean something like when events happen to you in your life, you interpret them sort of on the basis of your experiences. But there's also a version of this kind of claim, which is the thing I want to talk about today, that is much more literal. And it's the claim that literally the way the world looks to you can be affected by your beliefs, your desires, the language you speak, the mood you're in at the, at the time. Maybe the room looks darker to you if you're in a bad mood. Maybe you're more sensitive to certain colors if you grew up speaking a language that has terms for those colors versus a language that doesn't. And this is the intuition I want to talk about today. And again, maybe this is, to some people, I think this seems like this just must be obviously true. To some people, it seems obviously false. It seems like, no, what I see is just what I see, and what I think and how I feel, that's just, that's just something else. But we can't rely on our intuitions to figure out whether this is true or false because of exactly the sort of phenomenon, the relation we stand in with to our perceptual systems that I mentioned earlier in that their workings are, are, the workings of the perceptual systems are opaque to us. So this is what I want to talk about today. Let me sort of translate it into slightly more scientific language so we can figure out exactly what we're talking about. This is essentially the claim that perception, and here I'm going to be talking about visual perception, what and how we see, stands in this funny and interesting and rich relationship with cognition. And by cognition, I'm just going to mean basically everything else that you do with your mind, what and how we think, but also what we desire, what we believe, the emotions we feel, the language we speak, the actions we perform, such that cognition affects perception in this interesting and kind of rich way. Now, of course, there's a sort of boring, uninteresting, not rich way that cognition can affect perception, right? So um, how can my desires affect what I see? Well, maybe right now I desire to experience complete darkness, and I can have that happen by just closing my eyes, right? But that's not a, the kind of interesting influence of cognition on perception. The kind of influence we're going to be talking about today is this sort of richer thing where maybe we see the world through the lens of our experiences. Maybe your mood affects the perceived brightness of a room. Maybe the language you speak affects color. Maybe the actions you can perform affect the way uh, space looks to you. Let me get even more specific about what I mean by perception and cognition by returning to this illusion. So before, we were just sort of appreciating how neat this illusion is. This time, as you're looking at it, I want you to notice something about yourself, something that's a tension that's happening in your mind right now. The tension is that, on the one hand, 
you see these surfaces as being different. And on the other hand, you know that they're the same, right? You've proven that to yourself um, by blocking the middle with your finger. So right now, by just looking at this visual illusion, and in fact, it's sort of the definition of an illusion that you sort of are seeing the world in a way you know it not to be, you are experiencing the distinction that I have in mind between perception and cognition, right? Some part of your mind is representing this, the surfaces on this screen as being different, and another part of your mind is representing them as being the same, and those are the parts of the mind that I'm talking about, the, the different processes of the mind that I'm talking about, perception and cognition. And the question is, does the second thing, the knowledge, knowledge that you have, affect the first thing, the way the world looks to you? And so the claim that we see the world through the lens of our experiences and that what we believe becomes our reality is essentially the claim that there are effects of cognition in the sense that I just I mean in looking at that illusion, on perception in the sense I mean looking at that illusion. Okay, so... The, the, uh, the sort of, I'm going to introduce one little piece of terminology that's going to be important, which is that these kinds of effects of cognition on, on perception are often called, in the, in the literature that, sort of, that I'm a part of and that I sort of swim in, they're called top-down effects on perception. And throughout the history of psychology, there has been a sort of, um, the perspectives on w whether there are these kinds of top-down effects have swung back and forth almost like a pendulum where in some periods of psychology, people have thought, of course, there are all sorts of top-down effects on perception. In fact, there are only top-down effects on perception. That's how it works. In other eras in psychology, people have thought, no way. There couldn't be any top-down effects on perception. Perception is sealed off from the rest of the mind. Why would people think one thing or another? It's kind of worth thinking about that. Why would you think that there are top-down effects on perception of this sort? One reason that you could think it is just that there seem to be a bunch of studies that appear to show that there are top-down effects on perception. So this is a very famous study that was published in 1947 by uh, Jerry Bruner and Cecile Goodman. And in this study, they brought children into the lab and had them estimate the sizes of coins. And they separated the children into two groups, children from wealthier families and children from less wealthy families. And what they found was that the children from wealthier families judged the coins to be smaller, and the children from less wealthy families judged the coins to be larger, as if the sort of desires or needs of the children were literally affecting the way the coins looked to them. Now, it turns out that there, were, have been, there are some problems with this study. This was published a long time ago, and we can talk about sort of whether, what kinds of design choices they made in running this study, and whether we should believe the conclusions of it, and how reliable it might be. But... Um, this so th and this, this sort of occasioned a movement in psychology called the New Look Movement, and there were tons of studies like this. And for a while, everybody believed, of course there are effects like this on perception, um, because look how many studies seem to show it. And then this pendulum, after the sort of 40s, 50s, and 60s or so, um, swung from one direction, of course there are top-down effects on perception, to this other direction. I'm not sure if this uh, title is familiar to anybody, but this is a very short book that you could read in a day, and I recommend it. It's a classic in cognitive science called The Modularity of Mind by Jerry Fodor. And this book, um, and a sort of way of thinking about the mind that emerged from uh, the kinds of ideas that are expressed in this book, um, had a very different view about the possibility of top-down effects on perception. The view here was that perception is sealed off from the rest of the mind. Uh, the term that uh, Fodor uses is that it's encapsulated from the rest of the mind, such that it can't see out of its sort of borders, 
And so it doesn't know, your visual system doesn't know what's going on in the rest of your mind. And so there can't be any top-down effects on perception because it's, it's sealed off. And that was sort of the orthodox view for a little while until around today, or maybe the last decade or two, where the pendulum has begun to swing again. And there is now another huge proliferation of apparent cases of top-down effects on perception of the same sort as, as the coin studies that I mentioned earlier. And this is a literature that I follow very closely. And I've made a list, actually, of all the top-down effects on perception reported in the literature that I know of published in the last 20 years or so. If you want to see this list, you can go to yale.edu slash perception slash top-down papers. It's a very long list. It has about 160 papers in it. And so I obviously couldn't you know, list them for you now, right? because that would just take up so much time. If I were to start to do that, I would have to start telling you that there are studies showing that holding a wide pole makes doorways look narrower. Thinking immoral thoughts makes surfaces look dimmer. Categorizing faces as black makes them look darker. Words related to morality are easier to see. Wanting something makes it look closer. Being good at softball makes softballs look bigger. Thinking about the elderly makes distances look longer. Being hungry makes food-related words easier to see. Right, so these are all cases that seem to show top-down effects on perception. And I could stop there, I think. Right? I don't also need to tell you that uh, right, being, so, being good at parkour makes walls look shorter. Sad music makes obstacles look bigger. Dieting makes muffins look larger. Thinking about sex makes breasts look bigger, but only for men. And so it's a huge number of studies that are showing this. I think I just even skipped over a whole other page of them. And, and there, like I say, there are 160 papers out there, and you can take a look at the list. Um, and uh, these are not just you know, studies from some, some remote period in history. These are all happening right now. Right? So these are all studies, as you can see. They've been published you know, um, in many cases while you've been a student at Trinity College. And um, this is sort of like a cutting edge, hot topic. People are researching this right now and claiming that you know, we used to think that there are these sorts of top we used to think that there's no way there could be top-down effects on perception. We used to have this view that perception is encapsulated. But now we have all this new evidence that, of course, all sorts of states of your mind affect all sorts of other perceptual states. And in fact, you know, if, you're, if you're familiar with reading um, pa experimental papers in psychology, you know that it's sort of in the introduction sections, people sort of sort of make clear their assumptions and what they take for granted and what the background of the studies are. So here are just some quotes from the introduction sections of some papers published in the last few years, just to give you a sense of how strongly the field now believes in these kinds of effects. We're told now that the perceptual systems have traditionally been described as encapsulated, but now a growing body of work, right, the body of work I, I was referring to earlier, shows, refutes this framework and shows that the affective state of the perceiver, right, like maybe their emotions, can affect what they see. There are now numerous demonstrations that reliably establish that our current motivational states and physical capacities bias our perceptual experience. And it is even generally accepted that people see what they want to see. So with all this in place, I want to tell you that I have a sort of unpopular perspective with respect to all of these studies. And personally, I think that none of these claims are true. And that, in fact, there are no top-down effects on perception at all. But that's a controversial view, and you might not agree. And, I, and, and I th this is something that I think we can discuss. The, uh, the reasons that I have this perspective are kind of sometimes technical and sometimes complicated, but other times not, they're neither of those things. They're very easy to appreciate in a sort of first-person way. And one of the reasons, and I think actually one of the strongest reasons to be skeptical of these kinds of claims, is related to the illusion I showed you before. So we've now seen this three times. One time we were sort of just appreciating how cool it is. 
One time we were noticing the distinction between perception and cognition. This time I want you to notice that not only does the top surface look black and the bottom surface look white, it continues to look black and white even when you know that they're the same. Right? So you know that these two surfaces are, are the identical colors on this screen. You've proven that to yourself. You're just like absolutely certain that this is the case. And yet, that knowledge doesn't make them look that way. Right? So why is that? Well, there's a lot to say about that. But a natural explanation of why the th this uh, image continues to look like it has surfaces of different colors, even though you know that they're the same, is that you may know they're the same, but your visual system just doesn't know all the things that you know. And so that we, we can talk about some other reasons to maybe think that there are no top-down effects on perception. But here's one. And, uh, and if you want to talk about this some more, I've actually written a paper with this title. And uh, I can circulate it, and you can have a look at all the sort of varied and sophisticated and correct arguments that I think I've made that there aren't these kinds of effects. <laughs> now, to go into those, that would take up a lot of time and, uh, and I'll go into a lot of detail. So instead of trying to convince you that there are no top-down effects on perception today, what I'm going to do instead is show you a method that can determine for a given top-down effect whether it's perception or not. And I'm going to sort of introduce this method and uh, apply it to a few case studies and try to convince you at least that for certain case studies that might have seemed to compellingly show top-down effects on perception, they in fact don't show that. And uh, this method that I'm going to introduce is very general, and I think it can explain a lot of these kinds of effects. And so anytime you encounter a claim that there's a top-down effect on perception, you can think about whether this experimental method I'm going to introduce can sort of adjudicate the dispute over whether it's really an effect on perception or instead an effect on something else. Okay, so to introduce this method, I need to make a distinction between ways that you can support a theory in psychology or in science more broadly. One thing you can do, and I think this is probably a familiar way for many of you um, to think about psychology experiments, is you can find an effect when you have a theory that predicts an effect. So maybe you think that thinking immoral thoughts makes the world look darker. So what do you do? You bring subjects into the lab, you have them think immoral thoughts, and then you ask them how bright the room looks. That's one way you can do a psychology experiment. But of course, there's another way that you can confirm or disconfirm a hypothesis in psychology or in any kind of experiment. And that is failing to find an effect when your theory demands its absence. Sometimes this is complicated to do for theoretical reasons, for statistical reasons. But sometimes it's not that complicated to do. But in any case, it's very unpopular. This is not normally the way that you run a psychology experiment. But I think that there's actually a big opportunity being missed here. There's another way out there to try to determine whether there are or are not top-down effects on perception. And I want to take advantage of this second category of evidence um, in introducing this method to figure out whether a given effect is really an effect on perception. And to take advantage of this second category of evidence, I'm going to need the help of this man. This is the Spanish Renaissance artist El Greco. And this is actually a self-portrait that he drew. And uh, you might notice that in this self-portrait, he's looking a little bit long in the face. Maybe you can see that. This was actually a distinctive feature of a lot of his work. So this is a, a painting he made called St. John the Baptist. And you can see St. John the Baptist looks like he's 10 feet tall, and he's really long and wispy. And uh, this one is Mary Magdalene in Penitence. And you can see she kind of has this really long, stretched out neck. 
And it's kind of weird, right, when you look at these, these uh, images, what, why, why did El Greco choose to paint such long and wispy figures? So about 100 years ago, um, a Spanish ophthalmologist by the name of Herman Baratens published a theory of the distortions in El, in El Greco's work. And I actually have his original manuscript here, if anyone wants to see it after. It's very cool, and it's old. And uh, in it, he proposes that the reason El Greco painted uh, long, distorted figures is that he suffered from astigmatism. So astigmatism, that is something that you might know a bit about. Maybe some of you suffer from astigmatism. Astigmatism is a disorder of the cornea. It's when your cornea is a little football-shaped and ellipsoidal instead of spherical. And it produces vertical blurring on the back of the retina. So some people think that when you have astigmatism, you see the world as being a little bit vertically stretched out. Okay, so then the idea was that maybe the reason El Greco painted long distorted figures was that he suffered from really severe astigmatism. So he saw the world as really stretched out, and he was just painting what he saw. He saw a stretched out world, so he made stretched out paintings. I'm curious, does that seem like a compelling theory to anybody, or not a compelling theory to anyone? Can anyone detect like a flaw in that theory? For so uh, here's one reason why it's not, just, it's not just probably untrue that El Greco didn't have astigmatism. It's probably not probably untrue that he had astigmatism, and that's the explanation. In fact, it must not be true that he had astigmatism, and that that explains the distortions. Maybe he had astigmatism, but here's why astigmatism could never explain the distortions in his paintings. If he really saw a vertically stretched out world, he would also have seen a vertically stretched out canvas, right? And then the distortions could never have transferred to his canvas because if he really made stretched out figures in his, on his canvas, they would look even more stretched out, right? And so it wouldn't be the case that he was just painting what he saw. So this is a, a common, so, so, so when you first hear this theory, it sounds really compelling, but then when the flaw in it is pointed out to you, you're like, oh, of course, how did I ever think that that could be the explanation? And missing that point, has, which we all do, has come to be called the El Greco fallacy, um, and the El Greco fallacy is basically, I can sort of formalize it and capture it like this, when something is being reproduced and the means of reproduction are equally distorted as the item reproduced, these effects cancel, cancel out. And so I'm going to use this insight from the El Greco fallacy to design some experiments to figure out whether a given top alleged top-down effect on perception really is a top-down effect on perception. Is this clear? I just want, before I go on to some experiments, if it isn't, please raise your hand and ask me to explain it in a different way or clarify something about it. Absolutely. So, so um, I, I sort of, pref that's what, the reason I like the, the sort of allegory of El Greco is that is it, it may be clear in that case why if you really saw a stretched out world, you still wouldn't make a stretched out painting. Right? It's just like how, you know, if any of us saw something as being different than each other, we still wouldn't like draw a picture of it as being different because, you know, you can imagine like a thing, here's a thought we all often have. What if I saw as red what you see as blue or something like that? So imagine that for all of us, the, for, for this side of the room, colors are inverted with respect to this side of the room. There's not going to be a way for you two sides of the room to discover that by talking to each other because not only is your perception going to be uh, inverted, all the language you use is going to be inverted, right? So more generally, any time the way you're trying to capture something 
is affected by the same thing that's affecting the thing you're trying to capture, it all cancels out, right? So that's true for El Greco's paintings. It's true for color terms. If you see as red, what I see as blue. It's true for anything like that. Is that a little bit clear? Okay, so I'm going to go through some case studies of applying this insight from El Greco to figure out what a given top-down effect on perception is. And the first case study I'm going to talk about is something I've sort of been adverting to a little bit, which is the case of morality and the perception of brightness. So there was a study published in a very prominent journal in psychology a few years ago that claimed that recalling moral behavior changes perception of brightness. I'm going to tell you a bit about how this study went, and then I'm going to tell you about a study that I ran, sort of inspired by this study, to try to figure out um, the sort of proper interpretation of the results of this study. So here's how the study worked, both the original study and a, and a version of it that um, I ran in my lab also. So here's how the study goes. What happens is you ask people to recall and describe a good or bad deed from their past. And then you just ask them, how bright is the room that you're in right now? And they rate the brightness of the room on a scale from 1 to 7, where 1 is dark and 7 is light. And the study found in this really interesting effect, and so did we when we ran our own version of it, that subjects who recalled an ethical deed judged the room to be brighter than did subjects who recalled an unethical deed. And so this seems like a top-down effect on perception in exactly the way that I've sort of been referring to. You recall some dark misdeed of your past, and you actually see the world as being darker. And if this is true, this is a big deal, right? So you, here's something you can take my word for. Every year I go to a conference with a bunch of perception researchers, and this entire conference pays no attention at all to like the moral deeds or misdeeds of their research subjects. So if it turns out that moral behavior really changes perception of brightness, my entire field like needs to get its act together and, and uh, sort of change the way that it does science experiments because we're missing out on just a huge and in, an important and interesting influence on perception. Um, so this is a big deal. So now what we want to do, I'm going to try to apply this method inspired by the El Greco fallacy to figure out if this is really an effect on perception. And so how am I going to do that? Well, let's go back and run the experiment again, except that we're going to make one small change. This time, instead of rating the brightness of the room on a scale of 1 to 7, subjects are going to be given a scale of actual grayscale patches. And they're going to have to rate the brightness of the room by picking the patch that best matches the brightness of the room. Okay? And this is, the, this is probably the most important thing that I'm going to, as far as like trying to understand the, the thesis of this method, is to understand what's going on in this slide. So I'm going to spend some time on it, and I'm going to pause and give you as, as much chance as possible to ask questions about it. But I wonder if you can sort of appreciate the idea of this study of why you would use a scale of patches to figure out if something was really perception or not. The reason is the sort of same reason as is captured by the lesson from the El Greco fallacy. If recalling some bad thing you've done in the past really makes the world look darker, then it should also make the patches themselves look darker, and the effect should cancel out, right? So you think of it like this. If, if recalling a bad thing you've done is like putting on sunglasses and it makes everything darker, then that's not actually going to affect which patch you pick to match the brightness of the room, because the scale itself is going to be distorted in your mind. And just like you can't use a canvas 
to measure distorted perception of the world because the canvas itself should be distorted equally. You can't use a, a scale of grayscale patches to measure the brightness of a room if the room and the patches are supposed to be affected by your recalling of immoral behavior. Is that clear to, to is that not clear to anybody? I'm going to drink some water and pause and give you as much chance as possible to say, I didn't understand what you just said. I'm going to take one more sip. Excellent. Okay. So, uh, you know, actually, wait. So I know from, I know from, doing, uh, from, from being a psychology student myself that, um, that there's this sort of stickiness bias, a status quo bias. So right now all your hands are down, so you're not going to raise them unless like, you're really, really, really confused. So instead, can everybody raise their hand if they feel like they understand applying the El Greco fallacy to studies? And if your hand isn't raised, then maybe you have a question. OK, fine. You've convinced me. You understand the El Greco fallacy. OK, so now this is an experiment that should fail, right? If you really think that there are top-down effects on perception, and you really think that recalling immoral behavior changes perception of brightness, this is a bad study to run. This study shouldn't work. But suppose you're a bit skeptical, like me. This is actually a great study to run, because I'm the one predicting an effect. I think that maybe it's something that's not perception, in which case, maybe you should get an effect in this case. You should actually find that recalling immoral behavior makes people pick a darker patch. But if instead you really think that recalling immoral behavior makes everything look darker, you have to predict no effect in this case. So let's see what happens when we run the study with grayscale patches instead of with numbers, you get exactly the same effect. And so I think this is in a position, this puts us in a position to claim that this effect, this apparent effect of morality, not on brightness perception, but of morality on ratings of brightness, must not be an effect on perception. It might be an effect on something else, right? I haven't said anything about what I think it is. But I think that it's definitely not an effect on perception. Because if it were, then you shouldn't fi have found an effect in this case that I just found one. And so I want to say one more thing about what we can say about this, about this effect, which is that we can say it's not perceptual even when we don't know what it is yet, right? So what is it? Well, maybe subjects are confused in some maybe they're thinking darker thoughts so they pick they sort of they sort of have an association with darkness so they think about dark rooms and so they say the room is dark even though it doesn't literally look dark who knows what the answer is i'm going to say something about what i think the answer is a bit later but even before saying anything about what the answer is we have now put ourselves in a position to say that this effect is not perceptual and we've done it using this sort of new method i'm talking about the el greco fallacy inspired method of trying to figure out whether a given effect is an effect on perception. So uh, I promise that I will say something about, uh, so, so I should say, some people say, some people come to me and they, when I present this, these studies and they say, well, maybe the effect is specific to rooms, right? Maybe recalling immoral behavior um, only affects your perception of the brightness of a room, but not a patch. And in fact, the original study was actually called Recalling moral behavior changes perception of brightness, but only for rooms and not for screens. No, that's not true. It wasn't called that, right? <laughs> so the point is that um, when the claim is that there's this global bias, when all you say is it changes perception of brightness, then you're committed to predicting no effect in the El Greco kind of case that I, that I created. If it turns out that there's some other reason to think that the effect should be specific to rooms, then maybe the, my argument doesn't go through. Maybe, it, maybe the logic doesn't hold. 
But as long as the claim is the sort of global claim, then, then, uh, then you have to predict no effect in the case where the measuring equipment should be distorted in the same way as the thing that it's measuring. Okay, so I'm going to move on to a second case study just to show you how general this is. And this time I'm going to not only tell you why I think this is not an effect on perception, but also what I think it really is. So this is a case that's very different than moral behavior and different than perceptions of brightness. This is going to be a case of uh, an apparent case of your abilities to act affecting the way the spatial world looks to you. So this is a paper um, that was called Big People, Little World, The Body Influences Side, Size Perception. And this uh, study showed that if you take people and give them a uh, rod to hold across their body, which makes them wider, they will see doorways, or in this case, two poles that sort of make an aperture that you could potentially pass through. It'll make those things look narrower. Okay? And the idea is that your perceptual system is trying to tell you, hey, now that you're much wider, you can't fit through the doorway, so it makes it look narrower so that you won't try, because then you might get hurt. Or you might end up like this dog. So you don't want to end up like that dog. So if you hold a rod across your body, you'll see the world is narrower, um, sort of to you're, almost as if your visual system is trying to protect you and advise you not to take actions that might be dangerous. So we also ran a version of this study, and here's how it works. Subjects stand on this X, and they're looking at some poles that they could maybe pass through. In fact, they could pass through all of them, but sometimes it, was like, it would be a bit of a close call. Sometimes it would be easy to pass through. And in some cases, the subjects hold a rod across their body, and that's what it looks like. And in some cases, they just stand with their arms by their sides like this. And what happens in the study is they stand at the X. Let's say they're holding the rod. They look at the aperture created by the poles. Then they turn and face the experimenter. And the experimenter is holding a measuring tape. And the participant instructs the experimenter to feed out the measuring tape until it looks to be the same width as the aperture itself. Okay? So they're not just reporting the aperture by saying, I think it looks three feet wide. They're saying, I think it looks this wide. Right? And they're telling the experimenter, using the measuring tape, how wide they think the aperture is. Um, so, uh, yeah, so they, so they look at, so there's an illustration of that. So, in the original experiment and in our replication, we found that when subjects turn to face the experimenter and the experimenter feeds out a measuring tape, subjects who hold a pole across their body judge the aperture to be narrower than do subjects who just stand there with their arms by their sides. And so, just like in the previous case, this seems to be another kind of rich, interesting top-down effect on perception where, your ability, in this case, your ability to act affects the way you perceive space. And again, if you come with me to the annual meeting of the Vision Sciences Society, which is in Florida, it's on the beach, it's very nice, you, I recommend that you go if you can, um, you will see almost nothing about this, right? So this is not something that, that experts on perception are studying. And so if it's really true that your ability to act influences what you see in this kind of way, that's a big deal, and we've got to know about it. And it, would, it could revolutionize our, our field of, and our understanding of perception. So we want to know, is this really an effect on perception, or is it an effect on something else? And so now we're going to apply the El Greco fallacy again, and uh, we're going to see what happens. So how do, how do we do it this time? Well, 
The last time we ran this study, subjects turned and faced the experimenter, and the experimenter is holding a measuring tape. This time, the small tweak that we make is that the experimenter is instead holding another aperture. Okay? And now what happens is subjects, the, they tell the experimenter to sort of move one pole of the aperture to make it bigger and bigger and bigger, or smaller and smaller and smaller, until the two apertures look like they're the same width. Okay? And just as before, it should be clear why this experiment is sort of is probative in this case, why it can confirm or disconfirm this theory. This again, if you think that your ability to act in this way affects what you see, this is an experiment that should fail, right? You shouldn't be able to measure a narrower aperture with another aperture because this aperture should also look narrower because you're, it's, you have just as hard a time passing through it as you do the original aperture. So once again, if you really think that your, your own width affects your perception of width, you have to say that this is an experiment that should fail, just like in the El Greco case. But it didn't fail. We find the, the effect, again, matching apertures to apertures as we do matching a measuring tape to a measuring tape, me a measuring tape to an aperture. And so again, we're in a position to say that this effect cannot be perceptual. It seems like maybe your abilities are affecting what you see, but actually that can't be what's going on. It's, your abilities are affecting something, but it's affecting something else. And again, we can say this even if we don't know the true non-perceptual explanation. Right? We don't actually know. I haven't said, again, anything about what I think is really going on. I'm just telling you what, could, what can't be going on. It can't be that your width is affecting your perception of width. Now, this might not be so satisfying. Maybe you want to know, what, it, what is it? What's really going on in the study? Why did they find an effect in the original case? So um, uh, we have some clues as to what might be going on in the study from a similar study. Um, it's been reported even more famously than this rod case that wearing a heavy backpack makes hills look steeper. But a very clever experimenter um, named Frank Durgan at Swarthmore College um, did an experiment where he, he ran the same experiment as this wearing a heavy backpack makes hills look steeper experiment, where you give someone a heavy backpack and then you ask them to estimate the steepness of a hill. But what he did was he told his participants an elaborate cover story to, uh, about the purpose of the backpack. He told them, this backpack that I'm giving you it's not just, in the other case, it was like a mysteriously unexplained backpack. But in this new sort of critical experiment, he said, uh, the purpose of this experiment is to measure the flexion in your ankles as you climb the hill. So there's a reason I'm giving you this backpack. Don't worry about it. It's just to hold the heavy measuring equipment. And when you gave people a cover story for the backpack, the effect went away. Wearing a heavy backpack no longer made hills look steeper. So why is that? Well, the idea is that when you give people one, this is sort of a lesson in designing experiments, if you give people a very conspicuous manipulation, like you say, hey, here's a backpack, I'm not telling you why I'm giving it to you, just wear this backpack, and you're in a psychology experiment, and now I'm going to ask you one question, how steep is this hill? The subjects might infer a connection between the manipulation you're giving them and the, the task you're asking them to do. And in this case, that seemed to happen. So if you ask the people after the original backpack study, Hey, what did you, by the way, what did you think was the purpose of the backpack? They'll say, oh, I think, I thought you wanted me to say that the hill was steeper. So that's no good, right? So um, we thought that maybe something similar was happening here. So we wanted to come up with a cover story for why you would give someone a rod. Because maybe it's kind of obvious. You give someone a rod. We, I didn't say also that we asked people to imagine walking through the aperture. 
So it might be really obvious, hey, now that they gave me this rod, I can't fit through this aperture that they just asked me to walk through. I wonder what's going on. And I'm in a psychology experiment, so there's got to be something funny happening. So um, what's a good cover story for why you'd give someone a rod? Um, one that we thought of was based on this uh, film that maybe some of you have seen called Man on Wire. Um, where holding a rod is something that tightrope walkers do to improve their balance. And we noticed that that's kind of similar to what's going on in our experiment. Um, so what we did was we told people that the purpose of the rod was to improve their balance during the study. Now, maybe that's not so convincing because this guy is holding a really long rod that can really keep him stable, and this one isn't so long. So what we did was we also had a whole bunch of rods of different sizes on the wall. And we told people, we're testing all sorts, you know, maybe it's the rod will affect your balance, but we also just want to control for holding something at all. So we're testing big rods, and we're testing small rods, but then we just always gave subjects, this is the very same rod, always gave them this one. And so now the question is, when subjects think that there's some other purpose for the rod, do they still judge the aperture to be narrower? And the answer is no. It, the, that condition just looks just like the other one. There's no difference between um, having your hands by your sides and holding a rod with a cover story. So now we can say not only that this isn't an effect on perception, but we have some clue as to what it is. It's that subjects are figuring out the purpose of the manipulation. OK, so I've told you about this method um, for, um, for determining whether a given top-down effect on perception really is an effect on perception. And I just want to say a few things sort of by way of summary to, say, to sort of highlight some features of this method. Um, it's a new kind of way to investigate these kinds of effects, right? So at the beginning of sort of in framing this method, I mentioned that there are different ways to support a hypothesis in a psychology experiment. And this is a very unpopular way, but it's a good way. And it's not something that many people are doing, but I think it's something that you can do in all these cases. It's also widely applicable, right? So it works for cases of morality and brightness, and also cases of your actions on spatial perception. These are very different processes. These are different states that allegedly affect perception, and they're different perceptual states, right? Your perception of brightness sort of happens in a different part of your brain and is a different kind of process than your perception of how big or wide something is. Um, it doesn't so I mentioned before that there are sometimes tricky statistical issues with predicting a, fail a failed experiment. And I'm not sure how familiar everybody in the room is with this kind of issue. But um, any time you predict a failed experiment and you find and, you, and your experiment really does not show an effect, you can't always be sure whether it didn't show the effect for the reason you wanted. Or maybe it didn't show the effect because uh, you ran the experiment wrong. Or maybe you didn't have enough subjects. Or maybe the subjects didn't understand the task or something. So it, in general, it can be dangerous to interpret um, a null result, is what, is what we call it. But in this case, um, there are no null results. I'm in order to show that the effect is not an effect on perception, I'm predicting a real effect where other people should predict a null result. Um, and notice also that it doesn't require me, the experimenter, to be very clever, right? So I don't need, even though we did that elaborate rod cover story, we didn't have to do that, right? We can say that a given candidate top-down effect on perception isn't really an effect on perception without even going through the extra step of trying to figure out what it is, which can often take a lot of cleverness. One more thing about this uh, strategy and this sort of phenomenon in general, this sort of instance of fallacious thinking that the El Greco fallacy illustrates is that it's counterintuitive. Right? So when I asked you, um, you know, 
Does it sound plausible that astigmatism explains El Greco's distortions? You all kind of thought, yeah, I guess it does, right? And I thought the same thing when I first heard it. And this ophthalmologist who wrote this, who wrote this thing that I have, um, which really you should come see, it's very cool. Um, for, this is 100 years old, and many art historians have been sort of seduced by this explanation. Um, in fact, there are other reasons why it's not true that El Greco made those distortions. If you x-ray his uh, paintings, you can see that he draws the figures correctly in pencil and then only m introduces the distortion in paint. So they're intentional. But anyway, it's a, it's a counterintuitive idea, right? Once it's pointed out to you, oh, but there's this problem. If you really saw a stretched out world, he would also have seen a stretched out canvas. You realize, oh, of course, silly me for thinking otherwise. But until that's pointed out for you, it's very counterintuitive. And in fact, it's so counterintuitive that we think that other studies that have looked for top-down effects on perception have actually committed this fallacy without realizing it. They've actually applied the method that I've just introduced by accident and not realized it. So I'm going to give you an example of this, actually. So this is a report that categorizing letters and numbers as being of a certain color affects the color that they actually look to be. So here's how the study works. Throughout the study, you show people some letters and numbers. You show them a T, you show them an L, you show them an E, a 6, 8, 9. And in general, the letters that you show them are reddish-violet. And in general, the numbers that you show them are bluish-violet. But the most violet of the letters and the most violet of the numbers have exactly the same violet hue. But if you categorize, oh, letters are like kind of red and numbers is kind of, are kind of blue, what happens is when you, after you show this to people again and again and again, if you ask people to judge the color of the E and the 6, they'll judge the E to be redder and the 6 to be bluer. Now, so that's kind of cool. That also seems like a top-down effect on perception, a different one than I mentioned before, right? So this seems to be an effect of like learn, learned categories or experiences that you've had recently um, affecting what you see. But how did they uh, measure your, the judged color of the E, let's say? Well, here's how you might do it. If you were designing this experiment, maybe what you would do is you would show someone an E, and then you would give them like an adjustable patch of color on a computer, let's say. Or maybe you'd show them a bunch of swatches, like paint swatches or something. And you'd ask them, hey, adjust this patch to match the color of the E. And maybe they would judge it to be a little bit redder. And that's how you would know that they saw the E as redder. But in fact, that's not what happened in this study. The way that the authors of this study um, ran the study is they showed them, the subjects, a copy of the E. So they show you an E, ask you to adjust the color of the E, to match the color of this E, and they found that people made this E redder than this E. So they said, oh, they must be seeing E's as redder. But maybe you see the problem here, right? This actually has that exact property of the studies I, I, I have set up myself. If you really see E's as redder, you should see both of these E's as redder, and you shouldn't actually observe this effect. So the fact that you observe this effect probably means there's something else going on. Let me give you another example. Oh, yeah, and there's El Greco saying, no, 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 you can't do that. Right? That's the El Greco fallacy. Um, there, here's, a, here's another example. Maybe I'm not sure if this one will be more clear or less clear, but it's a, this, the more examples of this you see, the more it all kind of adds up in my experience. Um, so this was a report that, um, that uh, reading negative words, so, so sort of similar to the one of the first studies I mentioned, reading negative words makes you see the world is darker than reading positive words. Um, and I'm going to tell you about two experiments they ran that together are an El Greco fallacy. So 
Um, you read negative words, then you judge a patch of gray. You judge what, what color it is. And the finding is that you judge the gray to be a little darker than if you read positive words like gracious, trust, and sweet. So that was experiment one that these, uh, that these researchers ran. In experiment two, they showed that if, that if you show people words printed in gray ink and you ask them to judge the color of the words printed in gray ink, they'll judge the negative words to be darker than the positive words. Now, how do they measure that? How do they measure the judged brightness of the negative words and the positive words? They measure it using a scale of patches. Okay, But maybe you can see the Ogreco fallacy here if you look carefully. If experiment one shows that reading bad words makes patches look darker, then how can experiment two show that reading bad words makes the words look darker as measured by a patch? The patches themselves should have looked darker too. So in fact, this El Greco fallacy is everywhere. There are a huge number of cases. I, show, I can give you a list of 160 papers, and you, and you can go to that URL, and I can send it out again if you want to see. There are tons of effects out there, but a surprising number of them are susceptible to this fallacy. I think I'm, this is where I'm going to stop, and uh, thank you for listening to me about talking about the El Greco fallacy, and I thank you for listening to what I had to say.